good to be together, man. Thanks so much for being here. If you don't know me, my name is John. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and it's, it's my delight just to share with you this evening. Uh, I believe there's a word that God has placed on our hearts that I think is going to set some people free over the next couple of weeks. And well, the goal of every teaching should be to point people to Jesus, and uh, I think that's what we're going to do this evening. In fact, I know that's what we're going to do this evening, so I'm excited. Here's what, we, here's what we're beginning to realize. Uh, there's two parts to this pandemic. We've got the viral part that we're busy going through at the moment, and there's, there's a lot of study that's been done on that, and that's got a defined time frame to it. We know what's going to happen, right? I'll get to that in a minute. We don't know what's going to happen. We sort of know what's going to happen. We've then got the social part of the pandemic, which is far more unknown than the viral part, right? The CEO of Discovery Health this week came out and said um, they've done estimates and et cetera, and more than 50% of the population has already had COVID, according to their estimates. Uh, there's a vaccine that's available that's going to become more available. And so w- what he's saying is we are reaching critical mass. We're coming to a place where it's, we can't get much worse. <laughs> there's only one way to go. It's up and it's better. Okay? It's not over yet. There's still work to be do. Still, we still need to be vigilant. All of those good things, social distancing and, and hands, etc. But within the next nine to 18 months, there's a time frame on the viral part of this pandemic. It's going to be over. Within the next nine to 18 months, it will be gone. The social aspect of the, of the pandemic, however, we don't know. It's very much unknown. If I suspect if we don't give it concerted attention today, if we don't start beginning to work on the social aspect of the pandemic, within two generations, we're still going to be feeling the effects of this. Our children and our children's children are still going to be dealing with the social effects of this pandemic if we don't deal with it now. Obviously, there's an economic aspect and impact of the pandemic, but society is not merely economic. It could, it can, and it should be primarily social. Even if you're an introvert, you are primarily a social being. So we're not looking at the economic impact and the viral impact. No, it's the social impact and the viral impact. What's, uh, we've discussed issues of trauma before, and as, this, as the pandemic goes on, people are dealing with broader and more complex forms of trauma, and we're adding grief and we're adding loss onto our trauma, and so we're compounding our trauma. And so uh, as this, the longer this goes on, uh, the trauma becomes broader, it becomes more complex, and it becomes compounded. And so it, it, it becomes deeper, and it's an issue. Uh, create, creative places have largely been restricted, and so creativity has suffered. The, the relationships that we could have that pulled creativity out of us, um, meeting up with friends and uh, acquaintances, bars, gyms, uh, coffee shops, those places have been restricted, as have the meetings. And so at a time when businesses need to be more creative than ever to get themselves through this pandemic, creativity has suffered and actually gone backwards. Even more devastating is that scientists are telling us the impact on the national IQ, or the global IQ, the average IQ, is going to be a 35-point drop in people's IQs, averagely, which is devastating for some people. Because some of us need all the IQ points we can get, right? We're not all top 10 in matric. Some of us need help, right? I would argue greater than the impact of, of the pandemic on our IQ is the impact on our EQ. So our IQ is our intellectual quotient. It's, it's, our, it's how smart we are. Our, the e, our EQ is our emotional quotient. Our emotional quotient is our ability to understand, to use, and to manage our emotions in positive ways to relieve stress, to communicate effectively, to empathize with others, to overcome challenges, and to diffuse conflict. In a nutshell, our EQ, its primary function is it governs how we relate to one another. 
So what's happening is through this pandemic, the, the social impact of this pandemic is that we are losing our ability to relate to each other. It is becoming harder and harder for people to relate to each other. As we spend more time isolated, as we spend more time getting comfortable in isolation, we lose our ability to relate to each other, and that's a problem. So the, the viral aspects of the pandemic moves in wave, waves. We had the first wave, and then it kind of dissipated, and it went down, and we thought that was it. And then the second wave hit, and we kind of almost through the second wave now. And that's one of the main reasons that the government banned access to beaches, right? Because the virus moves in waves. <laughs> but the social, the social aspects of the... Thanks for laughing. I appreciate it. It's, it always makes... feels better. The social aspect of the pandemic doesn't move in waves. It moves in cycles, right? And what, but cycles, by their very nature, they repeat in themselves, and they keep coming back, right? They keep, they keep coming back, and they keep coming back to the same thing. It's basically Newton's first law of motion, okay? Those of you who are clever, Newton's first law of motion says this. An object will keep moving in the same direction at the same speed unless it's acted on by an external force, all right? If my high school science teacher was here, I would have spat his coffee out hearing me quote Newton in a sermon. Kerry Newhoff writes a book called Didn't See It Coming, and he puts it this way. Most people only change when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. That's the only time that most people change. When the pain of staying the same is greater, it becomes greater. And what happens is that as that cycle repeats itself, eventually the pain of change is less than the pain of staying the same. And I think what we've seen is uh, for many people, this pain of staying the same is hitting hard because in the past... People have compartmentalized their lives. So they've been one thing at church. They've been one thing with their friends. They've been one thing with their marriage. They've been one thing with their parents, with, uh, with their kids. They've been one thing with their friends. And they've been one thing at work. And so they, they've put their lives into compartments. And, so they, and, and it's not right, but they, they could get away with it, right? People could get away with it. What's happened now with the pandemic is everything's been lumped into one. So I work at home. My, I'm married at home. My kids are at home. I see my friends at home, and I go to church at home. It's all in one, right? And so people are getting overwhelmed. All of a sudden, all these different people that I used to be have been lumped and put into one. And so I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And, and we see people in response to being overwhelmed by all these relationships they begin to drop some. They think, because I'm overwhelmed, if I can drop one or two of these, then I will be less overwhelmed. It, it will be manageable. Instead of having six different personalities that I have to try and manage, I'll take three. And so what I'll, I'll just drop three of those relationships. And so we see people dropping their marriages. We see dropping their, people dropping their parental responsibilities. We see dro people dropping their children and their friends. And even more devastating, or as devastating, we see people dropping their faith because it's a relationship that they just can't manage because they're overwhelmed because the pandemic has forced them to socially integrate every part of their life, which, by the way, it was always supposed to be. I want to tell you today that it's not about dropping relationships. It's about ordering them and breaking the bad cycle of relationships. It's about putting good principles in place so that your relationships can be healthy and functional. It's going to keep moving in the same direction at the same speed unless you act on it with an external force. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at some building blocks that we need to do to break the unhealthy cycle of the social aspects of our pandemic. And we're going to be speaking for the next two weeks at least about relationships because, because society is primarily social. We're going to be looking at our relationships. So today, this evening, I want to look at our peer-to-peer uh, -peer relationships and so in general, I'm speaking about peer-to-peer -peer relationships, which is your friends, it's your family, it's your schoolmates, it's your varsity mates, it's uh, your work colleagues. Generally and specifically, it's marriages. 
It's your spouse, right? So if you're not married here today, if you're not thinking about getting married, perhaps you're only 13 years old, that's okay. I'm not speaking only about marriage. I'm speaking about how you relate to every single person that you come into contact with. That's, that's, that's what we're going to look at this evening. So let's talk relationships in general, marriages particularly. I'll take a minute to speak to those who consider themselves Christians here this evening. How... One of our jobs is to point people to an eternal reality that that is in heaven, right? That's what Jesus said. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our job is to point people to an eternal reality and then to take that eternal reality and make it and and pull it into our temporal circumstances here on earth. And so we are to tell people this temporal, this earth is not as good as it's going to get. This is is not it. it. It gets better. But it can also get far worse. This earth is not as bad as it can get. It's going to get, and it could get, far worse, right? And we have to take the reality of that eternal heaven and bring it into our temporal circumstances on earth. In other words, every one of our earthly relationships was created to mirror the relationships that take place in heaven. The eternal relationship in heaven, our temporal earthly relationships are to mirror those relationships so I want to go through three foundations which I believe the relationship uh, which governs the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's many. I'm just going to, t- I'm going to highlight three to us this evening and then, and then look at a biblical principle that I believe should underpin all of our relationships. Remember, we're talking marriages, but we're also talking friends, families, communities. We're talking all of those peer relationships. Number one, unity. Our relationships should be formed in unity. Our relationships are formed in unity. The first four words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That, that, the, word, the Hebrew word that is translated as God there is the word Elohim. And it's a word that's not in the singular form. It's in a plural form, right? It's not a singular. It's plural, which means more than one, right? Yet time and time again, God says to Israel, I am one. The Lord your God is one. I am one. I am one. What he's saying to them is, I am separate and distinct. I am, I'm not singular. I'm plural. And yet, I am ones. And so I'm not, I'm not going into a whole teaching on the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that this evening, except to say this. The Father, the Spirit, and the Son are distinct and separate personalities. They are not one personality. They are three separate and distinct personalities, and yet they are held in such perfect unity that God says time and time again, I am one. I am one. I'm separate and distinct, and yet I'm one. Friends, what it means for us to be in unity, it doesn't mean we are the same. It doesn't mean we have to dress the same. It doesn't mean we have to say the same thing and think the same thing at all. It means we can be separate and distinct, and yet we can still be held in perfect unity. Jesus in Mark chapter 12 is asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? And most Christians would quickly answer, it's easy. Jesus says, love God and love people, right? He says a little bit more. Mark 12 verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he says, love God and love people. There's no commandment greater than these. Of course, Jesus is saying, love God and love people. Those are the, those are the two commandments. Of course, he's saying that. But before that, he says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There, there's, a separate, there's a separateness, there's this, a distinctness, but that there's unity. Could it be, friends, that Jesus is saying, the, the most important command is be separate and distinct and be in unity as you love God and as you love people. 
Rich spoke last week about unity. Part of, that, part of it is having one dream, being one people, speaking one language. And Paul goes a bit further in Philippians chapter 2, and he, and he names four things. He says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and being of one mind. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, the same love, one in spirit, and of one mind. What does it mean to be like-minded? I think it means don't be contrary. To be like-minded means don't be contrary, which means when, when somebody says something or somebody thinks something, your default position shouldn't be the opposite of that. If, you, if your default position is the opposite of whatever your spouse says or the opposite of whatever your friend says or the opposite of whatever the church says, if your default position is opposite, you are not like-minded. You are contrary. He then says, have the same love, which means... I, I think that that means we choose to love each other as Christ loved us. I don't love you differently than you love me. We don't love each other differently. We all choose to love each other the same as Christ loves us. Have the same love. Being one in spirit. I think that means don't be a party pooper. Be one in spirit. What happens when you walk into a room? Are you aware of what happens when you walk into a room? When you walk into a room, does the whole atmosphere shift and change? If it does, it could be that you're not one in spirit with the people that are in the room. Be of one spirit. And then he says, and be of one mind. And this doesn't mean to think the same thing. We don't all have to think the same thing. Separate and distinct and yet held in unity. Being of one mind, it means don't think the same thing. But for goodness sake, think in the same direction. And don't think opposite. Think in the same direction. Might be the different thing. That's fine. Same direction. Our relationships should be formed in unity. Number two. Our relationships are founded in covenant. As our relationships mirror heavens, they are founded in covenant. Of course, this is true of marriage, but I think it's also true of all of our peer relationships. Here's why. If you're a Christian, if I'm a Christian, which I am, God is my father, right? And if you're a Christian, God is your father too. What makes it possible for God, for me to call God my father, for you to call God your father? It's the covenant that Jesus established by his death and resurrection between God and man. Right? But if you and I both have the same father, that makes us brothers and sisters. Okay? And so the same covenant that makes God my father, that same covenant makes you my brother and makes you my sister, makes me your brother. The same covenant. As I'm held in covenant with God, so I'm held in covenant with you. When we see our relationships this way, it, it has to change them. See, we are, we are not people that we have to work hard to get along with and we keep choosing to love and it's a hard slog. No. Yes, but far more than that, we are held together in covenant with one another. When we take communion, we thank Jesus for his body, we thank him for his blood, his, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, his body broken for our wholeness, and we thank him for the covenant that his death and resurrection established. But we don't stop there. We also thank him for the covenant that binds me to you. See, friends, this is why we, 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 we weren't created to have church on our own. When I take communion on my own, I say, thank you, Jesus, for your covenant. When I have communion with you. I say, thank you, Jesus, for your covenant that binds me to you, and thank you for all of these people that it binds me to also, because I'm not saying, Jesus, I belong to you. I'm saying, Jesus, I belong to Trevor, and Trevor belongs to me, and together, we belong to Jesus. He said, I didn't choose you, and you didn't choose me, but God chose both of us to be called as sons and daughters, and the same covenant that binds God to me binds you to me also. As the Father is unable to be separated from the Son, so you and I are unable to be separated from each other if we are in Jesus. This is why divorce is so painful. It's painful because we're separating something that was not designed 
to be separated. A covenant means that we cannot be separated. That's what it means to be in covenant. Our relationships were created to be formed in unity, to be founded in covenant. And thirdly, to be strengthened by humility. There exists in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a perfect unity. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, The Son can do nothing except that which he sees the Father doing. Jesus is not talking about an ability here. He's not, he's not saying, I don't have the ability to do something. Or, I don't have the ability to do anything. Jesus has the ability to do whatever he wants, right? The Bible says, uh, through him, for him, and by him, all things were created. He could do whatever he wants. What Jesus is saying is, I choose through humility. I have the ability, but I choose through humility to do nothing except that which I see my Father doing. In a few chapters later, John chapter 16, he speaks of the Holy Spirit and he says, when the Spirit comes, he will do nothing of his own authority. Only he will speak on the Father's authority and he will bring glory to me, being Jesus. The Spirit could speak on his own authority. The Spirit could bring glory to himself and yet in humility and in unity, he chooses not to. He chooses to speak on the Father's authority and he chooses to only bring glory to Jesus. I both love and struggle with Paul's instructions, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Paul says, be like Jesus. In your relationships with one another, be like Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Paul is saying, in your relationships with each other, be humble. Humble yourself in your relationships with each other. And, he said, and then he says, how does Jesus humble himself? He gives us quite clear instructions. How did Jesus humble himself? Firstly, by becoming man when he was God. So in other words, humility means to make yourself less than you are, less than you're worth for the sake of others, right? Jesus was God and he made himself man for our sake. So in Paul says, be like Jesus, humble yourself, make yourself, consider yourself less than you are worth for the sake of others, firstly. Then secondly, he says he didn't use his position, he didn't use his position as God to his advantage, right? He was... He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't use it to his advantage. If you want to be humble, it means you don't use your position of authority, your position of power to your own advantage. It means you use it to the advantage of somebody else. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And then he says, and then Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Friends, your humility will almost always involve you becoming obedient to something that you believe is beneath you. Death was beneath Jesus. And yet he humbled himself and became obedient to death for our sake. Your humility will involve you becoming obedient to something you feel is beneath you for the sake of others. Here's why humility is important. Your humility will open the door for God's grace, his enabling power to come into every area of your obedience. James chapter 4, verse 6, James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes our pride, but he gives grace. He gives his enabling power freely. He gives his grace to the humble. I want to talk for a minute. I know this is not only about marriages, but I want to talk to married people for a minute. I, I do quite a bit of marriage counseling. If you were to ask me, what is the number one characteristic that will rescue your marriage and set it up for success? I can tell you without doubt, humility. Time and time again, I'll tell you, humility. If you can get humility right, it will go, yes, there's a path to walk, there's a process to go through, absolutely, all of those good things. If you can be humble, 
80% of the battle is won. Because God says, I oppose the proud, I give grace to the humble. So some of us have opposition in our relationships because we are proud. When I'm proud, people oppose me, but more than that, God opposes me. When you're proud, people oppose you, but more than that, God opposes you. When you are humble, God gives you grace. He gives you his enabling power. True humility comes from a place of fully understanding our worth and yet valuing others above ourselves. Our relationships are to be formed in unity, founded in covenant, strengthened through humility. And then lastly, our relationships, I believe, are created to be underpinned by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 14, verse 17, uh, Paul says, The kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God, And he receives human approval. Anybody who serves Christ with righteousness, peace, and joy is pleasing to God and he has man's approval. How do we serve Christ? People often ask me, how how do I serve Christ? How how should I serve Christ? And my answer almost always is, the best way to serve Christ is you you can be clever. When you're clever, you can get it wrong. When you're not clever, just be simple. It's It's very hard to get it wrong. You want to serve Christ? Serve Christ by loving the people that he loves. Can't get that wrong. If you love the people Christ loves, you will serve him very well. You can do more, but if that's your base, you'll be doing very well. In other words, what this scripture is saying is uh, when you love people, love them with righteousness, love them with peace, and love them with joy. This word righteousness, it's it's quite an expensive word. It means to do what is morally right. To be righteous, to, to do righteous things, is to do what is morally right, right? But more than something that I do, righteousness is something that I am. So when I apply righteousness to something that I am, it, righteous, to be righteous means that I'm blameless. It means that I owe nothing. See, all of us were born owing a debt. It's not a financial debt, it's a moral debt. When I was born, before I, before I took a breath, I owed a moral debt to God by virtue of the fact that I was born into a broken, sinful world. I owed a moral debt to God. And God looks down on humanity and he says, I can see that for the rest of your life, you're going to work yourself to the bone to try and get out of this moral debt. And at the end of your life, you're going to be deeper in debt, exhausted and worked to the bone, but deeper in debt. You are not going to work yourself out of debt by being a good person. And so what God says is, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to send my son uh, to pay a debt on your behalf. Through my son, Jesus, I will make moral debt freeness freely available. In other words, I will make you righteous. You will be blameless and you will owe nothing. That's a place of being. And then we can do righteousness. Then we can do what is moral, not for the sake of getting ourselves out of debt, but for the sake and for the benefits of others. Can you see the difference between being and doing? I do, I, do, I do what is morally right, not for the sake of getting myself out of debt, but for the sake of blessing and benefiting others. Friends, what is, how does this apply to our relationships? How, how, should our, how should righteousness underpin our relationships? It has to be that the way we view our relationships is that people owe us nothing. To be righteous means I owe nothing, I am blameless. It has to be that our relationships, we view them with other people, that they owe us nothing. There's nothing more toxic to a relationship than somebody continually holding you owe me over a relationship. There's nothing more toxic. It will destroy a relationship. To underpin it with righteousness, set the other person free. Underpin your relationship with righteousness. You owe me nothing. God has forgiven the unforgivable and inexcusable in me. And so therefore, I'm able to forgive the unforgivable and the inexcusable in you. You owe me nothing. 
Then joy. Joy is a fruit. Fruit is a byproduct of good soil, sun, rain, gardening, and pruning. I think God is saying our relationships need to be underpinned by being fruitful. When our relationships produce the fruit of joy, the end result is life. Eating fruit leads to life, right? It's too many, I think too many people have relationships that don't have fruit in them, and so they never lead to life. Those relationships don't give life. Those relationships suck life from them. If it is a marriage relationship, and that marriage relationship is sucking life, it's not giving life, friends, you don't cut it off. You prune it, and you weed it, and you water it, and you tend to it, and you call in Keith Kirsten to come and help you make your plants better, right? Somebody who's clever at gardening. That's not me. I'm not Keith Kirsten, but I can help you with your marriage. And there are other better people than me that can also help you with your marriage. And so if that is not giving life, let's make it give life. We believe in marriage and we believe in your marriage. If it is, a, if it is a peer, an, another peer relationship that is constantly sucking life and not giving life, Jesus says, I cut off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Sometimes a relationship just needs to be taken out of our lives. If that relationship is constantly sucking life and not giving, sometimes a relationship just needs to be cut off. I can't make that decision for you. You need to make it. And then lastly, peace. When my relationships are underpinned by peace, it keeps reminding me that there's a ruler and it's not me. See, Jesus is referred to in the Bible as the Prince of Peace. And when my relationships are underpinned by peace, I say uh, that I'm coming under the Prince of Peace. They're under Jesus' rulership. They're not under mine. It reminds me that there's a ruler and it's not me. Many relationships, there's strife and enmity and not peace in a relationship because there's a power struggle. Somebody wants to rule the relationship. I want to rule it or somebody else wants to rule over me. And when there's a power struggle and there's a power imbalance in a relationship, there's strife and a lack of peace. I underpin my relationships by peace by reminding myself that there's a ruler and it's not me. It's the prince of peace. You know what I've noticed erodes my peace? Personally, irritability. I don't know if you've found yourself, I've, I've never been irritable in the past. Over, the, over this last 25 years that we've been in the pandemic, uh, what it feels like that, I find myself becoming irritable. And it's a problem. Because if I allow irritability to continue, once irritability is conceived in me, it gives birth to anger. When anger is fully formed in me, it becomes a roaring lion. First Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion, going around seeking whom he can destroy. A roaring lion is not a hunting lion. A lion that is, that is hunting for, for food is quiet. He stalks in the shadows, right? If he's roaring, he's chasing his prey away. He's quiet and he hunts in the shadows. A roaring lion is a lion with a sore paw. He is full of rage, he's full of fury, and he's actually just looking for a place to unload his anger. He's just wants, all he wants to do is reap destruction. He's not hungry, he's not hunting for eating, he's hunting for destruction. All he wants to do is, is, is unload his wrath and his destruction on something. Isn't that what anger does to us, friends? Doesn't anger make us walking around like a roaring lion with a sore paw, just looking for a person to unload our anger on, thinking that if we unload our anger on somebody else, it'll make us feel better, and it never ever does. will destroy our relationships. Jesus says, allow me to rule. Allow your relationships to be governed by the Prince of Peace and not by the roaring lion. One will build up, one will destroy. Can you stand with me, please, friends? Our earthly relationships are to mirror heaven's relationships. They're formed in unity. They are founded in covenant. They are strengthened through humility and they're underpinned by righteousness, peace, and joy. If your relationships this evening are under strain, Remember, an object's going to keep moving in the same direction at the same speed unless we break the cycle with an external force. If we come in with an external force that can break the cycle and start making our uh, relationships healthy and functional, that is our desire. As we look at going through the social pandemic, we want to break the cycle of bad 
social habits, starting with our relationships. There's some big building blocks there that you can put in place. If you don't have those building blocks in place, you can put them in place. If you do have them in place, and if you are continuing to put them in place, put the big, put the big box in place, and then don't let the small foxes into the vineyard. In other words, don't let small things get into your heart. Don't let small things get in the way. Don't let a love for sitting in front of a computer destroy your relationships. It's a small thing, and it's going to, a small fox, and it's going to ruin your vineyard. Put the big building blocks in place as an external force to break a bad cycle, and then don't let the small foxes in. All of the relationships I've spoken about this evening are peer relationships. They're between man and man. And the most foundational relationship that we have is a relationship between man and God. Remember we said our earthy, our earthy relationships are to mirror the relationships that take place in heaven, an eternal relationship. The, the relationship that I have with you is temporal, but the relationship I have with God is eternal. That is, that is the, the relationship that underpins every one of my earthly relationships. The, the, horizon, the, the vertical always supports the horizontal, right? If you've never... If you have never placed all of your trust in Jesus as the only one who can secure your eternity with God as opposed to apart from God, if you have never said to Jesus, I need you to make me morally debt-free, I place my trust in you to pay a debt on my behalf that I could not pay, to forgive me for, to forgive me for how I was born into a world that is broken and fallen and to make me perfect, morally debt-free before you. That is the most important relationship. Before you can sort out any horizontal relationship, I need to get my vertical relationship right. If that's you this evening, if you've never placed your trust in Jesus, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. It will be my privilege to pray with you, to pray for you. And I'd love to pray for you. If that's you this evening, why don't you raise your hand? I'm going to give you a minute or two to consider it, if that's you.